Good evening from the Carolina Weather Group Control Center in Charlotte. I'm James Brierton with continuing coverage of our coastal snowstorm. Coming up in the next few minutes, a recap of what took place today in South Carolina, accumulating snow and ice in some places. And now the storm is heading towards North Carolina, where winter storm warnings and a few blizzard warnings remain in effect. We'll break those down for you. And then coming up at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time, our scheduled Wednesday night show talking about space weather and everything that goes into preparing for so many of those amazing launches you see. That'll be coming up at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time. But first, our special snow coverage continues at this hour. We have several reports on the snow, the ice, and the freezing cold temperatures. We begin with Shea Gibson in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, winter storm 2018, January the 3rd. Here we are. We got about four and a half, almost five inches of snow in Wando, South Carolina, and we're all having a good time. What you think, Merrick? Pretty cool, huh? This is Jared Smith at CHSWX on Twitter for the Carolina Weather Group, Charleston, South Carolina, and folks, it's snowing. Snowing hard. We've had about an inch of snow here in West Ashley uh, just in the last hour. Uh, started with a good bit of freezing rain, accretions, you know, getting a tenth of an inch, uh, two tenths of an inch or so, uh, and then now switching to snow, blowing snow, lots of snow, big flakes, uh, good dendritic growth. Uh, behind me here, this is the uh, Uh, this is something that we haven't seen. We haven't seen snow like this. And uh, last time we had a measurable snow was two, 2010, but I think that this is going to evoke more memories of 1989 uh, when the Charleston area had its only white Christmas. Um, Weather Service is expecting accumulations of two to three inches. We may get a little bit more than that. Storm is doing a really nice job. Big flakes here, good ratios. Um, should be interesting to see what the snow ratios end up being. Uh, it's cold, it's icky, but everyone's having a lot of fun staying off the roads, I hope. Uh, should be enough here for a snowball fight here fairly soon. Um, sorry, Scotty, I wish we could do more than this for you. But, uh, anyway, folks, uh, that's going to do it for now. Jared Smith, reporting for the Carolina Weather Group Live in Charleston, South Carolina. Have a good afternoon. But it wasn't just Charleston that saw snow. We had winter storm warnings stretching as far south as some areas in Florida. And that also includes coastal Georgia. Tim Pounds is a friend of our show. He's a contributor. He watches frequently. And he sent us this video from just outside the Savannah, Georgia area to let us know what things are like in his neck of the woods. Hi, James. Hi, Carolina Weather Group. My name's Tim Pounds. I'm from Jessup, Georgia. That's about 45 minutes outside of Brunswick, Georgia, and an hour outside of Savannah, Georgia, here in the rural part of coastal Georgia. So um, just wanted to give you guys a quick update from down here in a place that never usually sees snow. Um, let's see. Let's look at the backyard table here and see about how much we've gotten here in the past couple hours. So we're probably at about... A knuckle's length, that's about an inch, inch and a half. You like my old rural Georgia measurement system there. And uh, if you want to look at, take a look at the edge of the house here, you can tell that it was also a lot of freezing rain and sleet before the system completely moved through. I would say, you know, in the middle of the night, it started out with rain, freezing rain, sleet, and by about 11 a.m. turned over into snow and snowed for probably, I'd say, about a good three or four hours. Uh, it was real interesting watching how the system worked. Um, it dumped a lot of snow in our area, but kind of north of us in the central part of Georgia, Macon, Augusta, Atlanta areas didn't see a whole lot of snow, if any. So it was interesting to get this 
kind of appearance out here in coastal Georgia. So uh, that's my update here. Thanks for having me on, guys, and y'all have a great evening. And Tim is absolutely right. Different parts of the state saw different things. You could be in the same town and not have gotten the same experience as somebody else, especially if you live along the coast. If you're watching live with us on Carolina Weather Group Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube earlier today, you know that when we were watching US-17 for a good part of the morning, the change from sleet to snow happened a little bit later there. They had some warm air mixing in, especially along that coastal area, but even if we just went a few miles inland towards Somerville, we already had a changeover to snow much earlier. That's why they're seeing those higher accumulations. But let's talk about those accumulations not only along the coast, but even inland towards the Interstate 95 corridor. That's where a bulk of the snow was recorded today in both South Carolina and now heading into North Carolina. So let's look at some of those figures here as we look at video that was captured across the area as well, too. These numbers are preliminary, I should mention. As of the 4 o'clock Eastern hour, we're expecting these numbers to go up and to get more as the night goes on. But starting with some numbers in South Carolina of Bluffton coming in at 4 inches along with Knightville. In the Charleston area, where we just saw reports from Jared and from Shea, about 3 inches there as well as on James Island. If we look at Goose Creek, they had about 2.5 inches of snow and counting. Again, a lot of these numbers are preliminary especially when we look at numbers like Somerville, which came in at two inches, but I would expect that number would be higher than what we saw in Charleston. So we'll continue to see these up numbers updating throughout the night and as we look ahead to tomorrow. We also had some ice accumulation reported across uh, certain areas in Charleston, uh, about 20th of an inch, along with on James Island and even in places like Mount Pleasant, reporting some figures there too. We saw a report not too long ago from our friend Tim Pounds. Uh, we even have some Georgia numbers we can share with you. Uh, near the Savannah area in Pooler, about three inches, uh, and that's not too terribly far from where we got our report from Tim Pounds. Uh, so we appreciate uh, that report from Tim, too. Uh, again, we are watching at this hour as the storm makes its way north. This low pressure is going to continue to hug the coastline, and for those of you living closest to the coastline, you can expect to see higher winds. That's why if you live in places like Elizabeth City in northeastern North Carolina, or even if you're watching us tonight from southeast Virginia, we have blizzard warnings up there because the closer you are to the slow, the more wind you're going to get. And the, one of the key distinguishing factors about a blizzard warning doesn't always mean you're going to get more accumulation, but what you are going to see is less visibility because the snow that does fall is going to be blown around by that wind. And that's why we have those blizzard warnings in effect, as opposed to the winter storm warnings that we see in so many other North Carolina counties at this hour. Let's take a look at how much snow we are expecting uh, from the National Weather Service forecast offices along the North Carolina coast and Interstate 95 corridor, we do have some new numbers in, so let's go ahead and take a look at those. Working our way from north to south, where we are expecting the highest of accumulations, and again, seeing some of those blizzard warnings here as we look towards Elizabeth City, about eight inches of snow by the time this is all said and done. One of the common tr uh, trends you'll notice uh, with this forecast, just like we saw in South Carolina, we're going to expect to see less snow as you make your way further inland. So as you make your way from the coast towards an Interstate 95 corridor, you can expect to see some of those numbers work their way on down. 
hugging the coast and looking at the National Weather Service forecast figures from Moorhead City, you can still see uh, an area, that band of about six inches of snow that we're expecting in Elizabeth City continues southward towards Plymouth and Columbia. And then uh, even the Outer Banks are going to get in on the action. Again, not as much snow accumulation expected along the Outer Banks, closer to about two inches or so, because as we mentioned earlier, they're going to get a little bit of that warmer air, more sleet and less snow. But we are going to have plenty of snow in places like Greenville and Washington and New Bern coming in at an expected about five inches by the time this storm is all said and done, about four in Jacksonville. Let's work our way inland a little bit and make our way towards Raleigh, where along that Interstate 95 corridor, we can still expect to see uh, an inch or two of snow accumulating by the time uh, we work our way through the evening hours into tomorrow morning. So if you are living in this area or looking to travel along the interstate, you can expect to see about three inches there in Roanoke Rapids and Nashville, Wilson, and then a little less as you make your way south towards Fayetteville and Fort Bragg at about two inches or so. Back towards the coast, and these from the Wilmington office of the National Weather Service, you can see about three inches of snow expected in Wilmington, four in Whiteville, and another three inches or so in Elizabethtown. You can even see some of the overlapping numbers there from what we're expecting to see by the time this storm begins to move on out from places like Myrtle Beach, four inches of snow as well, too. So by the time everything is said and done, if you do live along that coastal area, we are expecting several inches of measurable snow and even some ice accumulation in there. But Let's talk about folks not living along the coast. I'm in Charlotte. So many of you are watching maybe from upstate South Carolina or other portions of the southeast. It is freezing. You absolutely know about these cold temperatures that we've been experiencing here in the Carolinas and across much of the continental United States, and we don't want to leave anyone out. And we're going to make our way now up into the foothills where Carolina Weather Group panelist Scotty Powell filed this report. Hey everyone, Scotty Powell here in Morganton, North Carolina. Not getting the snow that everyone's getting down at the coastal areas, but we still have a lot of uh, clouds from the western periphery of this storm. It's given us uh, cloudy conditions. Day number four of us being below freezing. Temperature right now about 28, 29 degrees here in the early afternoon hours. I'm going to flip the camera around so you can see uh, we're pretty iced up over here. And I can actually put my boot on the ice and it's pretty thick. So. Again, no winter weather here in the Western Carolinas. Uh, that's all down at the coastal areas, but some cold temperatures, cloudy conditions. We may see a few flurries or, or stray snow showers in, in the Charlotte area, but nothing west of that. So that's the report here from Morganton. I'm Scotty Powell for the Carolina Weather Group. And frozen fountains and water pipes, pictures all across the eastern seaboard in much of the United States. This coastal storm will continue for North Carolina tonight before making its way into the northeast where there are more winter storm warnings, blizzard warnings and the like up along the entire eastern seaboard. Portions like Long Island, my native hometown area, could see upwards of a foot of snow by the time this storm is all said and done. Continue to follow the Carolina Weather Group on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for continuing coverage of the coastal storm. We're going to have even more on this coming up in just a few moments when we're joined by the rest of the panel for tonight's scheduled show, and we will continue to stream real-time temperatures and warnings alongside the screens so that we can continue to keep you updated through the night and then stay with us, like us, subscribe us, uh, so that you can be alerted to all of our live coverage. But for now, I'm James Briarton in Charlotte. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the uh, first edition of uh, 2018, January 3rd, 2018, Wednesday evening. Boy, it's been a memorable day, and this day will go down in history for a while. Uh, it's been an active day 
uh, along the Carolina coast and South Carolina and North Carolina, a historic snowstorm dumping uh, anywhere between two to six inches of snow and ice. We'll talk about it in a little while. We'll uh, let Shay and Jared kind of rest up. Uh, we do have our regular scheduled program, though, tonight. We have the 45th weather, uh, U.S. Air Force 45th Weather Squadron on with us tonight. Uh, they're going to be talking to us about their operations and just what they do along the Space Coast to help um, launches out and uh, to help out the, uh, the the weather community and the space community. So uh, looking forward to having uh, those folks on with us tonight. But before we get to Ricky and the interview, let's go over a few housekeeping rules. If you are watching tonight on our various live platforms, Facebook Live, Periscope, uh, YouTube, or if you're listening to our podcast, which you can now find on Stitcher and iTunes and Google Play and tune in. I think those are our four main outlets uh, we'll let our guests at the end of the show uh, give out a website or, or a Facebook page or a Twitter page where you can message them. So uh, that is the housekeeping rules. We will keep it uh, kind of short on the weather talk here at the beginning of the show because we want to get to our guests. And then afterwards, we'll kind of recap what's happened in South Carolina and what's ongoing in North Carolina and Virginia. So, Ricky, with that, I'll hand it off to you and we'll uh, start the interview tonight. So. All righty. Thank you so much, Scotty. Yeah, tonight we are so excited to talk about space weather and how the 45th Weather Squadron uh, kind of forecasts space weather and also helps to promote and ensure launch safety down at the Kennedy Space Center. So we've got Captain David Moreno joining us, retired Master Sergeant Tom Taylor, and Technical Sergeant uh, Sarah Knight joining us tonight. All three of you, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so let's kind of go one through one first and uh, kind of introduce all three of you and tell me how you made your start in the Air Force and how you eventually came to Florida. <laughs> all right, well, ahead, I basically, basically graduated from Florida State in 2009 and I was, didn't know whether to go to grad school or go ahead and do operational meteorology. So I went to a recruiting office and talked to the recruiter and told me that I was going to be forecasting for a few years. And so that's what really made me uh, join the, the, the Air Force, uh, really giving me, giving me that push to really do some operational meteorology <clears throat> right after school. As for myself, uh... I went to, uh, out of high school, went to the University of Florida for about a year. It didn't work out uh, at the time, so decided to join the Air Force. Um, I retired just after 20 years. Um, I was born and raised in Florida, down in Tampa, so it's coming home for me. Uh, I came back and started working at Cape Canaveral in 2004, so I've been here for a while. And then I guess for me, I... Uh graduated from the University of Southern Mississippi with a degree in literature uh, with the hopes of teaching, then decided that wasn't quite up my alley. So I enlisted on a whim, got a choice of seven jobs and ended up with weather because I had taken a weather lab one year in college. So here I am. And so Sarah, <laughs> I mean, thinking back to kind of your first days getting into weather in the Air Force, do you ever think you'd be forecasting weather for rockets instead of airplanes? Oh, definitely not. I didn't even know that that was a possibility back then. I thought I was just going to be, you know, weather forecasting on the radio. But um, here I am after a short trip to Korea. I managed to um, select a job here at Patrick 
or Cape Canaveral and it's just been amazing. I never thought I'd be here. And so David, that's something I think many people may not know is that there's actually a separate spot for where you guys are located, right? You're not on Kennedy Space Center or Cape Canaveral, you guys are actually at Patrick Air Force Base a little further south. Yes, that is correct. Our, <clears throat> excuse me, our main base is uh, Patrick Air Force Base. That's where uh, the 45th Space Wing is located, but uh, most, of all, most of the operations are 20 miles north at Cape Canaveral uh, Air Station. Air Force Station, and that's where we uh, have uh, all the pads uh, in conjunction with KSC, and that's where we have the uh, multi-domain operations center for weather. So talk to me about a day-to-day -day operation uh, at the operations center. What goes on on a day-to-day -day basis, and then what kind of changes when a launch is scheduled? So basically, uh, we are 24-7 throughout the 365 uh, days uh, of the year. We do provide aviation support to the three main uh, airfields that we have, the airfield at uh, Patrick Air Force Base. And then we also have a skid strip or another airfield at Cape uh, Canaveral. And then we also support the SLF, which is the shuttle landing facility at KSC. Um, so that's part of the aviation support that we provide. Uh, we have a, a TAF for Patrick, which is a... Um, uh, 30 hour forecast for airplanes and then also we do resource protection for the three uh, the three bases uh, then whenever there is a launch then we support through the three main phases of the operation which is generation execution and recovery uh, providing again a very detailed tailored forecast for uh, throughout the the three phases of the the operation uh, this could be as long as, uh, I mean, it depends on the customer, but we can spend about 45 days uh, just supporting one launch uh, from the time when the boosters are uh, arriving at the port through the, again, generation, which is bringing the booster from the port all the way to the pad or the hangar where they're going to put it together and then uh, at the pad where they're going to either Again, through the generation and execution phase of the of the of the process, we put it together, and then the countdown, which is depending again on the on the customer, t minus six hours, or now with SpaceX about two hours, we start providing um, detail tailored forecast for that uh, pad. Uh, so we, we, we can probably divide probably our operations into space launch operations and then resource protection and aviation support. You mentioned boosters several times. Do many of those boosters still come via boats and uh, cargo ships to the Cape? And so are you guys forecasting for oceans too? Uh, yes. Uh, we don't provide uh, per se uh, uh, marine forecasting or, or ocean or wave forecast. But we cannot provide that resource protection. So meaning sometimes they do pro they ask for um, weather through the route of that uh, the mariner, which is the boat that brings the ULA uh, rockets. So yes, we, we do, and that's that's part of the ocean. The that's part of the reason why the uh, the our operation center it's now called the multi-domain because we operate on the ocean side, also the air, and now lately in the space domain. So we are pretty uh robust when it comes to that kind of stuff. Very cool. So Tom, uh, I imagine forecasters that work at the 45th have to be pretty diverse in, in many different fields of weather and many different kind of elements they have to forecast. 
Oh, that's a fact. Um, it takes up usually when we get people here, it takes them a good year to get used to the, uh, the tempo of the weather through here and the uh, multiple operations we have. We, we are uh, specialized with our range weather forecasters who are here 24-7, like uh, Captain Marina was saying. And they do all the resource protection, the aviation support. Uh, and then we have our launch weather officer side that are strictly uh, dedicated to the launches. And you mentioned earlier you came in 2004. And Florida obviously uh, sees its fair share of hurricanes. What was the 2004 season like for you and having Cape Canaveral be threatened several times by hurricanes? It uh, it was uh, memorable for sure. <clears throat> that 04 and 05 season, those four hurricanes we had through there, uh, I think we evacuated for two of them. And uh, a lot of us on the, I think it was Charlie, we went to Tampa over to McDill. And, of course, it took a, a big turn and went over Tampa and missed the Cape. Um, but uh, it was just every couple of weeks. It was uh, definitely a memorable season. And so, Sarah, with these long windows that some of the customers, and that's a, an interesting thing now, you know, you guys aren't just forecasting for NASA or the Air Force, you're actually forecasting for all these partners that NASA is teaming up with now, SpaceX and, uh, and Boeing and ULA. Um, what are some of the challenges and how detailed do the forecasts get in the long range and then the short range? So in the short range, uh, we tend to get more accurate, you know, towards the day of, obviously, but um, we can forecast anything from <laughs> lightning and the timing, especially during the summer when we have sea breeze interactions and uh, customers need to know whether they can do certain operations at a certain time. So we do um, our very best, certainly, to give them exact timing, you know, as close maybe to the hour as we can give it. And then we give large windows of time. So if they have an operation that's over six hours, we try to narrow down the points in that window that would be the most impacted by certain things that they're looking for, either high wind speeds or lightning. And then we try to break it down into what sort of hazard they're gonna be running into. A lot of ours do deal with lightning. We are resource protection. There's a lot of people on the ground, a lot of parts in motion. And then of course, large you know, launch vehicles and payloads that are very sensitive to atmospheric changes and charging. So we try to be um, very detailed as we can, but it just depends on the customer and what they need and what we can provide them, but um, we do a fairly decent job at it. Do different customers have different criteria that have to be met for launches depending on the vehicle or the payload or something like that? Yes, they do. And so what challenges does that pose or is it more kind of just like a, a checklist of, hey, we have to be within this window when a launch occurs? A lot of it deals with um, kind of trading the information back and forth between the shifts. We have three shifts that kind of go across the day. So um, we have to be sure that if we're looking for a certain constraint that we pass that information along to each other and don't kind of let it fall off or get lost in the mix when we're trading shifts back and forth. Uh, otherwise, it's just keeping the continuity going between a long day-to-day -day operation. Shay, I think you had something you want to bring in? Yes, um, you said something about sea breezing. So I guess I'm going to bounce this to Captain Moreno and then, and then Sarah, if you'd like to join in too. Uh, you mentioned sea breezes in your forecasting. How, what, what kind of sea breeze uh, setup do you have where you're talking about, like where you forecast for and, and what sort of instrumentation you use to forecast for the sea breezes in that area? To maybe explain to our viewers uh, what exactly we're talking about here with, with micro scale weather. So yes, at, at, the, at the Cape, uh, we do have one of the most dense uh, networks of weather sensors. 
And that entails about 39 towers that have different anemometers at different heights throughout the uh, uh, throughout the range. Uh, I believe there's uh, anemometers at 6, 54, 100, or 250, and 500 feet. And so based on that, that network and uh, the bathymetry of the coast, we know where that seabreeze is going to set up. I mean, we're looking at uh, patterns from uh, where the high pressure is located, where that ridge is located in respect with the uh, uh, peninsula to know whether we are going to need a southwest wind or a uh, southeast wind to be able to kind of localize or pinpoint that seabreeze interaction. And then based on the the regime and the steering flow, we know what time that uh, seabreeze is going to uh, start, or that convection is going to start, and whether it's going to make it all the way to the Cape, or if it's going to stall west of I-95, or if it's not even going to make it. Uh, so um, again, based on, because of the pretty dense network that we have, we are we are able to pinpoint this, uh, this seabreeze interactions. And again, a lot of the uh, stuff that we have is studies and, and research that we have been doing for, uh, God, almost 30 years. We have our own rules of thumb that our forecasters are very familiar with and can actually uh, tell you within half an hour if we're going to have convection over the pads. And uh, Sergeant Knight can probably give you a little bit more detail on how, how we do that forecasting. It's very accurate because we have about 30 minute lead time for some of the lightning watches that we issue at the at the Cape. So I guess a lot of it, um, we have a radar that we can kind of control um, the DBZ on it. We can dial it down. We can see like all the way down to negative three if we really want, which kind of gives us a, a view of the finer particles, mainly like sea spray, the salt in the air. And uh, we watch that really intensely uh, throughout the day. We can actually see the sea breeze start to move in. Uh, and then it, again, it depends on the wind flow. Like Captain Marino said, if we have a certain wind direction of an overall regime flow, then we'll expect um, a sea breeze to either approach from the west or we'll expect the sea breeze to approach, approach from the east. And it's just a matter of the strength of the winds on where they actually end up meeting. And that generates a lot of our convection. So it's really just where do the two sea breezes end up? Um, we know we're going to have one or the other at some point. It's just when and where. So we monitor the, the speed and the direction just to find out which one's going to overtake the state and where they're going to collide. That's awesome stuff. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating when you when you see those days on uh, on radar all over Florida where you just have convergence of sea breeze boundaries colliding, and, and even some of your outflow boundaries where these storms flare up. It's just it's it's amazing. Um, do you guys have? I know like Weather Service has uh, weather balloons that are launched twice a day. Do you have your own balloons or tethered balloons that you might use for for um, a, an exact launch time or during that time frame? Yes, we do. Uh, the uh, At the Cape, we have a weather station that's responsible for providing the synoptic uh, weather balloon uh, for the eastern coast. And then also, on it's we have it on call. So if we believe that there's going to be severe weather, we can give it a, give them a call. And uh, and they will launch weather balloons uh, to be able to, for us to be able to evaluate a severe uh, event. 
Uh, I mean, that's uh, the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center can also give them a call and they will launch weather balloons to uh, support their mission as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there what we were given a little behind the scenes when we were down for the Go 16 launch? Isn't there some type of robot to you guys can launch a weather balloon with? Yes, that is correct. Uh, uh, we do have one. We partnered up with a high school, a local high school here. Uh, that uh, we had a problem, you know, whenever we, we had a lightning warning, uh, what, what we call a phase two lightning, uh, it's, we can't be outside. Uh, it's for the safety of the personnel. Uh, so we had a, a problem where if we had a phase two out, we wouldn't be able to launch weather balloons to be able to provide a forecast, a very tailored forecast to the launch customer. And that was affecting the the tempo the launch tempo so we needed to come up with some sort of idea to be able to launch weather balloons during a phase two and so the a local high school was able to come up with an idea and they developed this weather bot uh they uh <clears throat> they put together this uh very genuine uh invention and uh donated it to the 45th weather squadron and now we use it during phases uh during phase two we use the weather bot to launch weather balloons and actually not put anybody in harm's way that's awesome i think all of us wish we had a, a robot weather balloon launcher <laughs> <laughs> so tom uh, you were there for many years during the space shuttle era tell us a little bit of some of the stories uh, of space shuttle launches and just the weather that goes into play with them I, launching humans i imagine has a little more stress perhaps than launching uh you know, launch, launching the regular payloads. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> it was amazing to me that uh, any of the launches ever ever came together. Um, for a shuttle launch, for for example, with normal uh, lightning commit criteria rules, along with the, the shuttle rules for temperature and, and uh, different things, we also had what they had uh, uh, return, uh, RTLS, return to landing site. Uh, so if in theory, if the shuttle took off and it had a problem, it could circle around and come back and land back in the uh, runway where it took off. Uh, that never happened, but it did bring extra weather criteria there. So the conditions for launch around the Cape may have been fine, but because of that return to landing site, uh, there was criteria for no precipitation within 25 miles. Um, we also had to have three uh, TAL sites, transatlantic landing sites uh, for emergencies overseas and two of those three sites always had to be good at weather also for a launch uh, to, to, to occur. And also then we had the uh, uh, radar up in uh, Virginia and Iceland that both are, are Greenland, excuse me, that had to be a go also for the shuttle. So there was just a myriad of things, you know, for the shuttle to come. Um, the shuttle of course could take off. It, it wasn't, uh, set it wasn't restricted to a certain window uh, launch window like you know a lot of our payloads are so a lot of time in the summertime they would tell us you know we're going to launch uh the afternoon two o'clock on july 5th and uh, so we'd have to give them a 50 percent chance of no-go right off the bat you know weeks ahead because you know it's florida weather um seems like the two times we had hill i remember two times we had hill at ksc and both times so the shuttle was on the pad and it got damaged the nose cones got damaged uh, both times so it, it was pretty interesting it was it was some fun times missed the shuttle 
And with the lightning, uh, tell us about the threats that lightning would pose to a vehicle being struck on the pad. And then uh, and this may be something more for the, the active duty members, but tell us about the, the new lightning defense systems that are on the pads now. So one of the major threats, again, for uh, the range is lightning. Uh, and the reason why this is a threat is uh, the it poses a risk to the electrical system of the rocket. Uh, and it can actually cause a threat to the um, steering system. And so we want to make sure, and every time there's a lightning strike close to a pad where there's a rocket exposed, we, they, they have to kind of take it back into the hangar and run several tests to make sure that none of the circuits of the rocket got uh, uh, circuit or would there was any damage to, to, to the steering system. Because again, with the fact that we are in a very uh, populated location now, even though we're launching to the east, uh, with an issue on the steering system, we can... Uh, we can we have a safety problem for uh, the Florida Peninsula. So uh, recently, we upgraded our uh, lightning protection or lightning uh, detection system, which was uh, now it's um, contracted or was contracted through uh, I forget the the name of the company now um, Visola. And we have a, a sensor of ten uh, or a network of ten sensors. Uh, very very strategically uh, positioned and they are they are using the radio frequencies to be able to localize the different uh, lining um, step leaders and so they each step leader is sending out a signal and via triangulation we are uh, locating that step leader so with those sensors we can start pointing cloud to cloud or cloud to ground uh, lightning strikes. Uh, right now, I, the resolution that we have is 50 meters. So we can localize or we can pinpoint a, a lightning strike within 50 meters of the actual uh, location where it's struck. Have you had cases where you've pinpointed a lightning strike and gone out and seen the actual strike impact point? Uh, yes, there, there have been several studies where we have to kind of uh, verify the the accuracy of that uh, system and, and we have it and there's actually studies with uh, lightning cameras through KSC that uh, have been used to verify the uh, the effectiveness and the resolution of the of the system that's pretty cool it, it's amazing the technology that exists nowadays you know to kind of give us all this real-time monitoring uh, data um, last year, we launched Go 16, one of the new weather satellites. Uh, Sarah, talk to us about that, and uh, I guess kind of how exciting it is to launch an actual instrument you're going to be using uh, from Kennedy Space Center or Cape Canaveral. <laughs> right. I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it or not, but uh, we actually kind of already do, in a way, use it. Uh, we have seen Go's R uh, coming into our own operations center. Uh, I was using it actually this afternoon to look at the clouds moving through with this low system that was pushing off the coast. Uh, it's amazing the difference that you can see and just the resolution as the products come in. Uh, it definitely makes looking at the finer details of some of the smaller cloud features, particularly when we have um, you know that fair weather queue pop up that might turn into 
thunderstorms later in the evening, we can kind of watch how they develop with the much faster, you know, refresh rate that the goes or has. Uh, it's a little easier to keep an eye on that when they're developing throughout the summer. It's, it's very nice. And so with all this technology and all the different advantages, is there one thing you guys wish you still had that was maybe, uh, what's on the dream bucket list uh, for a space weather forecaster out of Kennedy Space Center? Oh, well, personally, I've heard myths of a uh, phased array system. I hear that that would be pretty nice, but I don't know if that'll ever happen, so. I think we all would love to have that. Uh, <laughs> right. I think we're talking about like 2020, right? Isn't that the big goal <laughs> for everybody? Something like that. T too long, in, in my opinion, but um, anyway. Um, Tom, let's bring you back in for a minute because you know I, I'm just I'm fascinated at all your the stories of the space shuttle and how that launched over the years. Um, tell us just one or two memorable stories you have about not even just weather, but just kind of of launches in general. Uh, I guess uh, you know something that always affected me uh, personally uh, for a shuttle launch is uh, usually before a launch uh, they would bring the crew. Uh, through where we work into our building, uh, Morrell Operations Center. And uh, they would go, go talk to the guys that actually would push the button for the struct if, if uh, the shuttle went off course and they had to blow it up. Uh, so it kind of put that human aspect in there uh, for the struct guys to meet the crew and talk to them and, and know that, hey, you know, there's people on board, make that impression. And uh, I, I don't know, that's something that always sticks with me, you know. Uh, and now that we're Going back, hopefully in the next couple of years, to, to human uh, space flight again, uh, you know, it's, it's a very exciting time uh, to be in this. I mean, uh, it sounds kind of trite, but we, we do make history every day with with every launch. We make history and uh, things are speeding up so fast. You know, the technology that uh, is coming with the, the SpaceX and, and Blue Origins, uh, you know, it's uh, it's just it's amazing to me just in the last you know, 10 years, how much, how much things have changed. Uh, two points I want to hit on off of that. Uh, obviously with SpaceX, we now have landings that have to come into play and not just, you know, aircraft shuttle landings, but rocket landings upright. What weather challenges does that pose? It does bring a, a few new challenges in, um, you know, because you've got, you've got your launch and landing right away. I mean, it's kind of a uh, instantaneous forecast for it. Um, the only difference, I guess, is sometimes they're they're launching off Kennedy Space Center and landing on Cape Canaveral, uh, which makes it, uh, you know, a little little strange situations for some time. Um, and, and there's more of that coming. You know, Blue Origins, all those guys are going to start landing. Um, so it's like I said, it's just an exciting time. And you also mentioned mishaps and obviously those, those can and do occur over the years. Uh, the most recent one that comes to mind was the explosion on the pad with SpaceX uh, over Launch Complex 40. Uh, what were some of the things that you guys had to do with that? Were you brought in to forecast or provide on-site uh, disaster support almost or emergency management support? We do. We, we have emergency procedures for any kind of mishap. Uh, I'll let Sarah talk a little bit more about that. Um. From the forecaster standpoint, pretty much what we do is uh, we give support to whoever needs it. So if there's a, a hazard that might be carried by the wind, we'll get calls asking the wind direction, wind speed, and then 
they'll kind of lay out sectors that might be affected by various toxics if there are any involved and then we also um, run a very large kind of data save so that in the event we want to discuss what happened in the future or if we want to review kind of uh, any weather that might have attributed to whatever hazard or as out that might have been going on we'll have that available to us. Um, so it's basically a lot of administrative work for us where we just save all the products that we use throughout the day from our forecasts uh, all the way to the models. It, it just depends on what happens, but it's a large uh, saving process. I remember when I was down for a SpaceX launch a few years ago, uh, there was concern that some of the exhaust would be blown a certain way. And obviously launches are very popular uh, on both Cape and also in civilian areas. What type of input do you guys give to maybe NASA or the viewing sites to decide what's a good spot and what's not a good spot or if any of them need to be closed as a result of weather impacts? So our, our wing safety office actually does that. They run blast and toxic programs uh, through our weather models uh, to determine where the fallout for debris or uh, hazardous fumes would, would go to. And they run these programs consistently before and during the launch. And uh, they've actually had to uh, move people like uh, from one viewing spot to another during a launch count countdown due to one shift. That's pretty crazy. Well, anything else from the rest of our panel members here? Anything you guys are interested in? Well, I know that I wanted to ask something that was a little bit on a different subject altogether than from launching. And that is, uh, with the Air Force uh, doing meteorology in the Air Force, are there anything uh, anything to do with ozone studies and, and global studies that the Air Force is still doing that you'd like to talk about? And I'll, I'll take this one right to Captain Moreno to start out. Um, I, I think I asked you that offset when we were doing our test hangouts about ozone studies and anything else that the US Air Force does. Uh, if, you, if, if you have anything you want to add, I'd love to hear, or we'd love to hear as a panel. I'm sure there are there is uh, ozone studies and all that. We are not really focused on that here at the Cape, especially because we do a lot of mesoscale and microscale uh, forecasting. We do have our own uh, scientists or um, uh, science science office at, at the at Patrick uh, uh, at the at the weather squadron, and and he is in charge of kind of bridging that gap between operations and and research. And based on the needs of operations, he is always uh, looking for new developments in science to be able to kind of bring them back to, to, to operations. And so there's a lot of studies that, ha that are involved with uh, sea breezes, uh, lightning detection systems, uh, with convection, uh, lightning cessation studies, all that kind of stuff that's out there uh, and we do forecasting initiatives uh, projects with different universities to be able to kind of better the the forecast uh, the operational forecasting that we do here at the Cape uh, so there's also uh, the Air Force uh, has this program at the Air Force Institute of Technology where we have meteorology officers or meteorologists that are uh, doing their uh, graduate studies. And basically what we do is every year, uh, Air Force weather um, sends out a specific operational problems that are, uh, that are posed to the students so that they can uh, develop a solution 
and and out of this they they get a thesis and and also a master's degree um so we do have a lot of those uh initiatives that we send to AFIT, uh and, and they provide their studies uh for example last year uh, we had a problem uh, with how how early can we cancel a lightning phase two a, or a lightning warning so that whenever we have a lightning a lightning warning, it's not out for two hours and we are not impacting operations. So one of the initiatives was okay. So how soon? What are some of the thresholds? What are some of the signals on radar or uh, sensors? that we can start looking at to be able to cancel that warning in time to be able to minimize the impact on, on operations. And so we were able to, I believe, shave about 12 minutes uh, um, out of the, on average of each warning to be able to provide that or give that, give that time back to operators so that we can maximize the time that they are on the path prepping that rocket so that we can launch it in time. Understood. So uh, one last question for me, Ricky. Um, I, I just want to ask, what is the best time of the year that you would consider for launches? I mean, I know in summertime we have sea breezes, wintertime we have strong nor'easters or north northerly winds. I mean, it seems like um, sometimes maybe during the fall or even sometimes during the spring, those may be the better windows. But uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Climatologically, I believe here for the Cape, we probably want to launch <laughs> or there's better chance for uh, to launch on time uh, in the fall and winter time, especially because we can time and track a front, a, a cold front better than we can uh, forecast uh, the onset of sea breezes and, and, and eventually uh, a convection. It's just uh, we can, models are getting better to where we can time out that front and better provide a launch window or forecast that uh, launch um, a few, few uh, I guess, more, with more days in advance than uh, during the summertime. It's very chaotic and, you know, uh, we might have a day where we're not forecasting sea breeze or uh, convection and then all of a sudden we have this queue that's gonna start to grow up and give us a uh, lightning uh, or, a, a an event where we can't launch because of lightning or the the clouds too thick that's developing ice particles that could potentially trigger a lightning strike. So what you're telling me is that my uh, upcoming goes S launch in March, I shouldn't book the hotel with a non-refundable time just yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's March first. We're still looking at a uh, winter type of uh, launch, so. It's a little bit more reliable than if you would say June 1st or July 1st. But less mosquitoes, perhaps, right? That is true. <laughs> well, go ahead and book it, Ricky, because I'll take the tickets if you don't want to go. Uh, sounds good. Um, what is the staffing like at, at the, uh, I guess, the operations center or the different people at Patrick Air Force Base? What's the staffing like overall in the entire squadron? Uh, for our squadron, we have about 39 people. Uh, we have... 22 enlisted members and about six officers. A squadron commander is a Fulberg Colonel 06. Uh, we have a DO that's a Lieutenant Colonel. And then uh, we have uh, three flight commanders for the three different sections that we have, which is uh, operations, WXR range, and um, 
airfield and range weather operations. Then we have also space operations, which are which is the flight that uh, supports all the launch launches from the Cape. And then also we have a, a WXT, which uh, deals with all the tactics and techniques uh, and development. So all the systems and and new procedures that come in place uh, to be able to support the the operations at, at the squadron. Very cool. All right, last final question. Nice civilians. Uh, sorry about that, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that uh, kind of wraps up everything that I had, Scotty. Anything you want to bring in? Otherwise, maybe have a plug everything here. Yeah, I was uh, just wanted to ask, uh, I guess not really based off your job, but kind of, do you guys have any memorable uh, weather experiences there uh, throughout your meteorology career? Any besides hurricanes and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I guess hurricanes. Will no, I do want to. I, I do want to tell you guys uh, uh, something. When I was thinking about it, when you're asking about uh, uh, launch things, uh, back again in the shuttle day, had the opportunity a few times to go up and see the shuttle while it was on the pad. You know, like a day or two before launch, and the tower up to 39A or B, and uh, you're about you know 150 feet in the air, I guess, and you get up to the nose cone of the shuttle. And uh, you think we're going to we're launching this shuttle, you know, it's going into space. So up at the top of this up, up at the top of this tower by the shuttle, there's these these mylar balloons floating all over the place. And there's uh, usually two young ladies or two two people there with foghorns and, and their sole job. They stay there 24 hours and their sole job was to scare the birds away along with the balloons <laughs> to keep the birds from pecking on the foam, you know, the foam on the, on the nose pad. It was just one of those uh, one of those things. It's, it's kind of you know you, you're here technology. You're launching this thing into space, you know. And but my gosh, we, you know, going old school to keep the, the the birds away, you know, and not get it wet. It was it's just crazy. It makes for a great bar conversation. So what do you do? Uh, I get to blow the horn and keep the birds away from the space shuttle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is David, Sarah, do you guys have a memorable weather exactly. moment uh, besides uh, working there at the squadron? I don't know if it really uh, goes towards weather. I'd have to look into the reason why this happens, but um, I think recently it came up again uh, with the SpaceX and everybody was watching and saying it was aliens because, you know, the plume spread out across the sky and everybody could see it. And it was very amazing. It happened the same time uh, with Muos, I believe four. And it was just an amazing plume. I had never seen anything like that. I didn't even know that was a, a possibility it just spread across the sky and i don't know i think it's one of the amazing things i've seen so far i've always heard that sunset launches are the best ones to go and see if you have the opportunity is that true yes the uh, plume actually becomes rainbow colored i don't know if anybody's really fond of rainbows but uh, it's definitely an interesting thing to see that is true any any launch that as the sun is either rising or setting as far as some of the most memorable stuff that I mean, I, I think anytime we're launching or that we are supporting an operation or that we're forecasting and there's an actual severe weather event, it's very interesting to see how uh, the team that we have on the uh, multi-domain operations center is very dedicated and 
they have they are very proud of what they are doing uh, day to day to be able to do or provide resource protection because at the end of the day is not just uh, protecting the assets that we have I mean the personnel yes but it's it's protecting the capability that we're providing to the United States uh, you know the national security putting out launch uh, rockets and satellites in space to provide uh, really the entire world for with a better life and uh, um, resources for not only science but everybody to study and and I mean just in our case as weather people we like data and every time we have access to better data, uh, better res uh, better resolution, uh, and, and for us that are supporting this mission here and be able to say that we are allowing rockets to be launched, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so my three years are about to be up here, and I don't want to go, but it's just the way it is for active duty people. Well, we appreciate you guys coming on uh, our show tonight, and thank you for uh, letting us know what you guys do, and we appreciate your service. Uh, as we are ending, if uh, any of our guests... Oh, I think Shay's got one more. Sorry, Shay. No, what, what we got to ask the guests on every show, what got you in? What got you interested in meteorology? Was it something that happened at a young age, any particular storms, or what got you, what got you peaked, or your interest peaked? Uh, for me, you know, I mean, I was kind of always interested uh in science period and uh being in florida uh, especially with hurricane development and stuff like that uh when the opportunity came along in the air force uh i jumped at it very cool and then uh captain marina how about you uh i was very interesting on how clouds formed uh i grew up in mexico aguascalientes central part of mexico and I was very intrigued by how those clouds were able to be so big and and yet still float in the air. Uh, I moved to Miami uh, when I was 15 years old. Uh, and then I moved way to the center of uh, where all the hurricanes happened. And so that it also gave me more, uh, opened up my mind and how things happen. And so I started looking into what was it that I needed to do to know those kinds of things? And I found meteorology. So I went to Florida State and uh, got my degree and then wanted to do some operations and joined the Air Force. So yeah, I guess clouds. <laughs> Very nice. I love, I'm all about clouds. And uh, how about for you, Sarah? I think I had uh, to put on mute. If you go to the top of the screen, you should be able to unmute yourself at any point uh, if you want to talk about what got you interested in meteorology. We can't get it. Okay, no problem. Uh, bounce it back to you, Scotty. All right, Shay, thank you. Uh, I will give you guys the opportunity if you have any uh, websites or social media you would uh, like to pass on to our followers and listeners. Uh, I'll give you that opportunity right now to do so. I'm at uh, Stormseer50 on Twitter. All right, thank you, Tom. We appreciate it. David, Sarah, you guys have anything or? I just have my personal Twitter account and, and Facebook. I'm uh, not, 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 not very, um, what's it called? Um, I don't participate that much on, on social networks. <laughs> I'm going to try and be more active. Uh, but uh, as of right now, I don't have uh, an account that I can give out. So that where I, I, I just don't, don't participate that much. 
That's okay. We appreciate it. Well, guys and gentlemen, or ladies, uh, we appreciate you guys coming on tonight and uh, keep up the good work. And hopefully we can catch up with you guys uh, later on down the road. Hey, Scotty, there is a uh, 45th Space Wing page on Facebook. It does talk about all the launches and, uh, you know, the weather squadron and all the other squadrons on the base. So uh, people might might enjoy that. Awesome. And we'll, uh, we'll get James to link that up on our uh, blog post that we do about the show. And uh, that way uh, our followers can uh, link into that. So, again, uh, thank you uh, very much for joining us tonight. And uh, stick around if you want to. We are going to transition uh, into uh, the current weather that's going on and our tweets of the week. Do you guys have a preference what you want to do first? panelists uh let's do currents i guess first Mark okay plays into that so all right go thank ahead ricky you I'll let you... thank you david we appreciate it thank you guys so much well um as i think everyone kind of understands now we've got a nice little low pressure system bombing off the coast uh undergoing massive bombogenesis right now and so i'm going to do my tweet of the week and a little weather summary all at once uh this tweet just came out from nasa sport appropriate for tonight's show. Uh, these are gravity waves propagating outward from that convection off the South North Carolina coast there, off the new GO-16 satellite. Some of the, uh, uh, I think this is band 13 of the uh, IR satellite from GO-16. So really cool stuff and uh, amazing what GO-16 can show us. But that thing is really deepening now. And of course, as a result of that, we end up getting snow along the North Carolina coastlines, even a little bit inland. I just saw Wake County schools are closed tomorrow. Uh, we're always seeing a little bit of snow and got blizzard warnings up from my hometown area of Hampton, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, uh, portions of Chesapeake. And of course, Shay, you guys had a lot of fun today too, down in the Charleston area dealing with some snow. Yeah, we sure did. I mean, we got, uh, some places got up to seven inches of snow. I mean, uh, where I live, we got about four and a half inches and uh, some, some surrounding areas, five inches. I think Jared, he got about five inches or so mm -hmm. in West Ashley. And, and we had a really good spread. Uh, it started out, it did exactly what we thought it would. Uh, and then weather forecasting, National Weather Service, Charleston did a great job. Wilmington as well. Uh, they they, they hit, it, hit the nail around the head. It's going to start out as freezing rain, change to sleet, change to snow. Uh, and so that was the the progression of the storm for the day. So this morning was pretty nasty. Uh, we had uh, roadways were slickening up. It was over, at one point, there was one, over 100 wrecks at one time um, in the Charleston area. We're just not built for it here. And so when they salt the roads, they only do the major... Uh, interstates and bridges and so we just don't have the uh the fleet to handle all the roadways here all the roadways here uh so there were lots of accidents and, and i hope everybody's okay today but there were there were a few severe some vehicles that were overturned one slammed into a vehicle in mount pleasant i'm sorry into a building in mount pleasant so definitely um you know cue into those things when you have a winter storm approaching try not to get on the roads and that goes for tonight and into tomorrow as black ice warnings are, are being put up by the weather service i saw them mention that in a tweet a little while ago uh, and this will probably be sticking around uh, for several days some of this ice and slush may may occur tomorrow and then refreeze again tomorrow night do it again on on saturday refreeze or friday and refreeze again friday night because our low temperatures are going to be in the low 20s uh, each night, at least until Sunday, Monday, when we finally get a warm up. Uh, that's kind of where, where we are. But I'll go ahead and do a tweet, my tweet of the week. And I'll pass it on to uh, Jared. Let me see if I can get it going here. Oh, I just had it up on screen. Give me just a second. By the way, there's thunder snow in uh, Wilmington right now. 
Yeah, I thought that we might get that this morning, actually, uh, because some of the convective banding was really it was really cranking up along the coastline. It, it looked almost like you, you were going to see some thunder snow, but um, deformation zone. The warm nose was kept trying to kept trying to work into the coast, so we had snow and then a little bit of sleet trying to push in, and then it backed out again, and, and then we had all snow. But this is the the tweet of the week. I just got this a little while ago. Uh, this is uh, someone I know actually named Brandon Cordina. And he's a professional kite boarder with best kites. And here he is snow kiting. And this is at Patriots Point Soccer <laughs> Fields uh, over Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And, uh, you know, to be, to be able to snow kite in Charleston, South Carolina, I mean, how, how ultra rare is that? I mean, this is something you do in like Colorado, you know, or up in the mountains or out west uh, over the open plains. But this is, um, yeah, it's pretty neat. So there, there's my tweet of the week. Snow kiting in Charleston, South Carolina. What a rarity. Uh, Shay, I'm, su I'm, su I'm surprised you, uh, that wasn't you out there earlier today. Yeah, I thought about it. Trust me, if I, if I could have gotten in the car to go meet him, I've got the snowboard here. I was I wanted to so badly, but the roads were just too treacherous. I think the Wanda Bridge is too steep for any cars to get up. I, I don't even I, I don't know if anybody made it in the ice. All right, well, Jared, we'll pass it to you, buddy. I know it's been busy for you as well. Yeah, to put it mildly, uh, or not mildly, it was very cold. I only was able to take about 10 minutes at a time, but um, uh, this is going to be one of those benchmark days for Charlestonians. Uh, this is the third snowiest day all time on record at 5.3 inches at the National Weather Service office uh, at the airport. Um, we're going to be talking about this one for a long time. A uh, very fun way. And, and as it turns out, it's essentially going to give students in Charleston County a, yet another week of uh, winter break. So because th they're now going back on Monday, uh, they're not taking any chances of the black ice or anything like that. So uh, going to be interesting uh, to, you know, see how we recover from this. This is a uh, we haven't had a snow like this since really 1989. We had some, you know, we had some accumulations, some decent accumulations uh, around Valentine's Day 2010. Um, and that made the roads a little bit messy, but nothing like this. This is uh, this is a whole new league here, folks. Uh, it's been rather wild. So my tweet of the week. I mean, there is a, I, I, everyone in Charleston has been fantastic about getting photos out and um, doing snow totals and measurements. Just everyone's just been remarkable at that. Um, it's been very hard to choose one, but this one really stood out for me. So this is um, by Mark Swick. He was. Uh, it looks like he was elevated. He looks like he was around MUSC uh, downtown, but you have you have a look at the on ramp uh, and kind of the interchange there uh, at Calhoun Street and the uh, James Island connector, South Carolina Route 30. And um, this is just something you don't see. You've got snow just covering all the roads there, and this is downtown. This is right at the water. This is right at the harbor. Um, and you can see, you, you'll be able to see the snow falling here. He's got another shot. Uh, let me see if it'll load there. Yeah, so there's yeah, there's another one right there, a little bit of a panoramic shot. Um, and, y'all, this is uh, – uh, I've, been, I've been doing social weather for about 10 years. Um, easily my favorite day. Easily just – this is uh, – it was uh, pretty – awesome to put it mildly so um scotty back to you my friend all right jared thank you uh james i see that you've got a picture pulled up so i'll let you go ahead and do your tweet of the week yeah i don't want to rain on anybody's parade but uh shay was talking about being built infrastructure wise and i just want to show a picture of my car here and it, it didn't come out very well in photography but uh as i wrote in the text you think i drove up north returning from uh new york christmas 
lots of salt on the road. And I will just briefly share that uh, we were up there about a week ago when they got about uh, two inches of snow or so. And everybody just kind of went, whatever. So um, not, not trying to take away, I, you know, I think infrastructure is a huge part of what makes the difference between uh, a winter storm up north, a winter storm down south. Peter's not here, so. Uh, I don't know if I'm if I'm repping the the northern half of the country tonight, but but I'll, I'm just going to throw this question out as a hypothetical because I'm not expecting anybody to do the math, and, and I know it doesn't make any sense for major cities and municipalities down south to buy a bunch of plows to have them sitting around. But you know, I've seen other municipalities up north who who take snow plows and put them onto the front of vehicles that already exist, like uh, garbage trucks that you already own. So, you know, I, I, it, I'm, I'm interested that they're not going back to school until Monday, Jared. That seems like uh, if businesses follow the same, I always just kind of wonder what that buy a plow loss of revenue handoff is, but that's what we do in the city of Hampton. They strap a plow or a front yeah. anything. And uh, I gotta say the city of Hampton does a pretty darn good job of actually uh, clearing all the snow and everything. The, the issue is going to be upcoming, to figure out if we can actually clear the snow because it's all going to fall and freeze at 11 degrees turn to ice. But that's different. You're right. Ice ice is a different game. Ice is a much different game. I think game. James is just trying to use an excuse to rib at us here in Charleston. <laughs> I, I'm not trying Yes, to I know we're not prepared. We just don't have that kind of mentality, James. We get it I, maybe once a year. I will say we kept the Ravenel Bridge open this time. I don't yeah, know how it happened. I don't know how it happened. I mean, we had a trace of ice and they shut that thing down for four hours last Friday. I don't know how we did it, but kudos to DOT and everybody. We finally got it right. Now it's going to be interesting to see if any chunks of ice fall off the cables like they did uh, after the 2014 ice storm. Yep. And the if they were in, you think they were running electricity through it this time? Maybe they hooked up some, some battery cables <laughs> <laughs> through the okay. cable stays. The space heaters, right? I mean, uh, oh, well, man. Ashley, I, I do have a tweet of the week. You also dealt with winter weather in the past uh, week or so. so. Yeah, so I actually did have a tweet of the week. I'm trying to get it up right now. Maybe. Let's see. Is it up now? Yes, it is. All right. Yes. So mine's not actually winter weather related, but it is emergency management related, and it's more on the recovery aspect. So I was flipping through Twitter, and I saw this today, and I thought this sign was absolutely awesome because the county put this up uh, after the wildfires in Sonoma County a few months ago. And basically it's um, discussing the flash flooding risks over those burn scar areas, which we know is a huge player in flooding after those kinds of fires. And I love these signs because it brings awareness to the public that are there if they're hiking or camping or anything like that. But it's also in Spanish, which is amazing too, because we work really hard to do multiple languages but it gets very tough to actually apply that. So it's great to see that that's catching on through emergency management, uh, even now in recovery. So I, I would love to see more of these signs go up uh, in disaster recovery. That is a great tweet. That's a, that's a thing that I know we had to deal with in Western North Carolina last year, yeah, last year after the wildfires. So um, very good information there. Yeah, Definitely. All right, well, I'll go last. I am the only person on this panel who has not had to deal with winter weather in the past 10 days, and I'm quite jealous that my friends Shay and Jared got historic snowstorms and 
Ricky uh, up in his area in Tennessee got some northwest flow, snow, and Ashley got some freezing rain. And Western North Carolina got absolutely nothing. But I will say this before I share because it kind of is linked into my tweet of the week. One thing that I enjoy about snow is it gives you an opportunity. Sorry, James, I don't know if you're listening right now. But it does give you an opportunity to kind of just shut down and enjoy the family. I got to see pictures of Shade today playing with his kids out in the yard, sledding in the neighborhood. I got to see Jared walk through his neighborhood and talk to his neighbors and enjoy the snow. And one thing I love about snow days is that it gives you the opportunity to slow down and enjoy life and what life gives you. So uh, today's, um, I'm working with a new computer, so give me just a second. So today's uh, tweet of the week is, of a family who was at the Isle of Palms uh, today. They were doing snow slash sand angels uh, on the beach today with the snow that was falling. Uh, this is from Tyler McCurry. It was actually on Jared's uh, social media, uh, Charleston Weather uh, Twitter page today, and I snatched it off of there, but I thought this was really cool. That's the one thing I love about snow days is it gives you the opportunity to kind of just stop what you're doing in your everyday busy life and enjoy family and friends. And you don't get to do it a lot in the South. So sorry, James, to rain on your parade, but we love the snow here in the South. And I think for one reason, it's because you get to spend time with friends and family. Go ahead. And the best part is when nightfall comes, I have a live image up that represents what you get to do in the evening. (laughs) That's right. That is not a log. (laughs) That is my fireplace. So everyone cozy up by the fire and stay warm. That's exactly what, what my kids did after they got done playing in the snow. We had the fireplace going and, uh, and gave them some hot chocolate and all that. So one, one final view to supplement what Ricky showed. Here's the, um, the um, RGB air mass for the slow pressure system off the coastline. You can see it starting in its bombogenesis stage, uh, what we call bombing out. Uh, I don't consider this called a bomb cyclone, as I've been seeing. But <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's an extratropical cyclone. Uh, that is in the bombogenesis stage. So this will be very interesting to see how this plays out in the next 24 to 36 hours. So if you live along the Mid-Atlantic in the Northeast, good luck to you. Stay warm, stay safe. you got one heck of a storm on the way to you tonight and tomorrow. Look at those last five to six frames there, Shay, and how it kind of just surges up into North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Uh, let me uh, pull that back up again. Yeah, like watch right there the coast. You see right there. Boom. Yeah. Boom moisture surge that's you know you got it you got to factor in you know your warm gulf stream that's sitting right over it you know and uh that 76 to 78 degree water and then your air mass is is in the 20s at the surface and then you have your freezing column aloft and it's just a giant clash of air uh two different air masses right there it's really amazing really amazing stuff i can't wait to get the glm data so we can see what the lightning looks like in that no doubt, right? Yeah, I can't wait to see that for, for um, tropical systems as well. All right, guys. Well, we'll close this show down again. For those folks who uh, got snow today, make sure you get out and enjoy it. For everybody in the southeast, another surge of Arctic air is moving in. Looks like we're going to be uh, very cold Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and we start to moderate uh, through the later part of the weekend. So just uh, be mindful of a few more days below freezing, and then – Looks like next week we start to warm up. And talking about next week, let's uh, quickly promote the show. Uh, we are going to be talking about how summertime thunderstorms change are changing. Uh, kind of, uh, we've talked about this subject a little bit last year, but 
Andy Perrine from uh, NCAR will be joining us to talk about uh, that. So uh, he'll be our guest next week. And then after that, we're going to be talking about forecasting wildfires. So Ashley was mentioning that just a little bit ago. Um, Todd Lindley from the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma, will be joining us on the uh, 17th. So that's the next couple weeks here on the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you have a great uh, weekend. Stay safe out there. Stay warm. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Facebook. Download our uh, podcast on Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes. Did I forget anything else, James? Perfect, Scotty. Perfect. Visit our website, carolinaweathergroup.com, and we're also on Patreon, right? Uh, Yeah, Patreon. If you want to support us, you can support us there, or you could also support us by downloading the Stormwatch Plus app to your iOS device, then using the reference code CAROLINA to uh, stay abreast of all of the severe weather and bulletins that are issued to your area. They'll come straight to your phone. James, you look like you're you're doing like a classic 70s love song (laughs) commercial, you know? Carolina Weather Group after dark. (laughs) All right. We're done. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week.